Amen. Well, let's open in our scriptures to Isaiah chapter 7 this morning. Isaiah chapter 7, if you're using a house Bible, it's page 571. This morning, of course, Russian troops are pretty much close to surrounding the city of Kiev. We've all been hearing and seeing the news play out day after day. Uh, NATO nations are on high military alert. Western nations have imposed heavy economic sanctions. And the possibility of world war has crossed not a few minds. But God is sovereign over all of human history. Amen? Even over wars and rumors of wars. Even over times of uncertainty, times when even His promises seem threatened, times of conspiracies and hidden agendas and coups. This morning, Christians around the world are suffering great temptations and afflictions and persecutions for the sake of our Savior. And it seems like God's promises that they will rule and reign with Christ are are threatened by the powers of the world. But God is sovereign. He rules over all. He sits in the heavens and does whatever He wills. No one can stay His hand. All His purposes are being worked out brilliantly in ways that are far beyond our comprehension. This is the great message of the prophet Isaiah. God is working out all of His purposes and He calls on us as He called on the people of Isaiah's day upon King Ahaz to trust His Word, to rely on His covenant to rest in His promises and build His whole life and His kingdom on those promises. That's what God's calling you to do. Amen? That is exactly what God is calling you and I to do today. To rest and trust in the certainty of God's covenant promises. To know that He is working all things out for the, for the accomplishment of those things. Isaiah ministered in a, in a difficult time as well. For, uh, for him, there was likewise a gathering army surrounding uh, Judah. This, were, this was the armies of Assyria and uh, the powers uh, that were allied uh, against them as well. Uh, Assyria was the dominant world power. Uh, they had really come to expand their territory under this king that we read about earlier, Tiglath-Pileser III. He was a uh, mighty leader of those peoples, a military uh, commander as well. And when the nation of Assyria really became the empire of Assyria, when they began to press down further into the Middle East towards Judah, many of the 
countries that were being threatened uh, by their expansion resisted and uh, joined together in a kind of anti-Assyrian pact. We're stronger together, right? And on the other hand, some of the nations that were being threatened by their ever-expanding power decided that it was better to uh, make uh, good with Assyria and to pay homage to uh, the Assyrian Empire and maybe things would go better for them. And in the midst of all of this sort of dual, this, this dual conflict going on in, on Isaiah's day and, and the day of Judah and King Ahaz, Isaiah offered to Ahaz a, uh, a strikingly different alternative to forswear all allegiances and put his hope and trust in the Lord and in God's promises. And God sent Isaiah to that king, King Ahaz, so long ago, to to challenge him to do just that. Now, the the situation that was taking place was that the kings of of, of Syria, not Assyria, but Syria up in the north of Israel, and also the king of uh, Israel, which is the northern kingdom, if you remember the kingdom of Israel originally uh, split into two. The south was Judah, and then the northern kingdom, sometimes called Ephraim in the north, or Israel. And so the kings of Syria and of Israel had joined together in a pact against Assyria and were pressuring uh, Judah to join with them in their alliance. And so that's where we begin this now drop into history. Isaiah's been uh, prophesying and foreseeing things, and now he really makes it clear that God's promises are not just some sort of um, pie in the sky, something that doesn't have any application to our actual experience and the, the unfolding of human history. It very much has to bear on the lives of his people. And so this is that historical section that reminds us of that. So chapter 7, verse 1, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it but they could not yet mount an attack against it. When the, house of Is- uh, when the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, or Israel, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. You ever had something that just really shook your heart when you were fearful, when you felt yourself quaking because of the um, difficulties that you were facing, a time in your life when the thoughts in your head were just like screaming so loudly that you couldn't hear yourself think, so to speak. That's the situation in which Ahaz found himself now as this alliance, this northern alliance is pressing down on him uh, because of his resistance to going along with them. And so verse 3, the Lord 
And I, the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jeshub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool of the highway to the washer's field, and say to them, Say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, let us go against Jerusalem and terrify it and let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. You see that... Ephraim or Israel and Syria were conspiring together to decapitate Judah's leadership. They were out for regime change. And their goal was to kill the king, King Ahaz, and all of his male uh, uh, family members and to set up their own king. So there would be no challenger anymore from the house of David. They would install a leader who would be sympathetic to their um, cause and lead Judah to join in this pact against Assyria. Isaiah uh, appeared in court at the command of God with his son. And in chapter 8, actually verse 18, the Bible says that Isaiah's children were signs of God to Judah. You know, prophets often did unusual things to give signs to the people of, uh, that they were preaching to. And, and uh, in this case, I, Isaiah's own sons were testimonies to these people. And so he was commanded to take his son, Shear Jashub, when he went to visit King Ahaz. The name of this boy meant a remnant shall return. A remnant shall return. What does that communicate? Here you are standing with a remnant shall return. Well, on the one hand, it communicates um, the judgment of God. This, is a, this boy is a sign of judgment because it's a remnant that's going to be left, right? Earlier in the prophecy, remember last week, Isaiah had said God's going to bring His judgment on these people and it's going to be like only one out of ten is left standing after the judgment of God comes through. Just a remnant. So it's a, it's, he's a sign of the judgment of God, but he's also a sign of the mercy of God, right? The grace of God to preserve, in fact, a remnant. To bring back... Uh, a, a holy tithe, as it were, of these people to raise up from that stump uh, a holy seed that would become fruitful for the glory of God. They would return. Isaiah was so confident in the word of the Lord about these things that he was willing for that word to be made flesh in the person, in the naming of his own son. A remnant shall return. His firstborn son became that sign of the mercy of God. And so he now comes to King Ahaz and delivers to King Ahaz God's assurance about God's plans for Syria and uh, 
and Israel. Verse number 7. Verse 7, if you'll follow along. Thus, he says, thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass the plans of these two nations. For the head of Syria is Damascus and the head of Damascus is Rezin. And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Remaliah. And if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. This was Isaiah's assurance to King Ahaz about the purpose of God for this northern conspiracy. Their conspiracy to overthrow him, to overthrow his dynasty, will not succeed. And, if, and, and he says, within 65 years, Israel or Ephraim will cease to be an, a, a recognizable people. And, and that is, looking back now from our perspective, we see that is exactly what happened, isn't it? In, in the 700s B.C., Assyria came against Israel, and uh, in Israel's rebellion against Syria, Assyria, they, uh, they, they conquered and they dominated. They killed many of those people. They deported them. They settled uh, foreigners in the land of Israel, such that by the time uh, of Isaiah's prophecy, as he looked forward some 65 years you would not really even be able to recognize a, an Israelite, one of the, the people of those northern, that northern kingdom. They would be dis, dispersed to the ends of the world like so much chaff just blown to the wind. He says, this is what God is going to do. And I want you to notice in this text that God wants us to think about Ahaz in terms of, and, and, and really all of these kings, in terms of headship, in terms of a, a, a dynasty. It's not just King Ahaz we're talking about. We're thinking about Ahaz in terms of his relation to the line of David. Um, and, and we're made to think about it this way because of the way Isaiah gives this prophecy, right? Look back down at the text again. We're made to think in terms of headship and connection to dynasties. The heads, he talks about these head cities of the countries and the heads of those people. But who is Rezin and who is Pekah, the heads of these people, to stand before the Lord? But the way the text is recorded, God wants us to think about this. Well, who is Ahaz? Who is Ahaz? Well, Ahaz is a descendant of whom? What, what family line is he in? What dynasty? David, yeah. He is a part of the house of David. Notice verse 2. Rather than mentioning Ahaz by name, it says, when the house of David was told. Right. So there's something bigger going on here than just Ahaz. In fact, that's the way the Lord speaks again down in verse 13, the house of David. All of God's blessings to Judah were for the sake of David. And, and, and just not just thinking about David as 
as, a, as an individual and, you know, oh, he was a great man, but David as the embodiment of the covenant that God made with his people. All of God's goodness to Judah was for the sake of David and for the sake of God's covenant promise to him. The house of David, remember God said, will never lack a man to sit upon the throne. The kingdom of David will be established, the Lord had said, forever. And that's exactly what was being threatened by this northern conspiracy, right? They came down and said, let us decapitate the line of David. Let us kill this son of David and set up the son of Nabil. Right? That's why his name is not mentioned. It doesn't matter who he is. It matters who he's connected to. Let us get rid of the house of David and establish the house of Nabil. This is nothing less than an undermining of God's covenant promises, right? God's promises to David. This is nothing less than the enemy's attempt to destroy the messianic line before the Messiah is even born. Isaiah said, It won't be David's house that is decapitated, but the heads of Damascus and Syria, they will be cut off in the providence of the Lord. And friends, I want to remind you that it is God's word and God's purpose that is always secure, no matter what happens, right? No matter what conspiracies are going on, no matter what wars, no matter what rumors of wars, no matter what apparent threats to the outworking of his purposes, he is always on the throne preserving his promise for the sake of his people. God's covenant promises are sure. And we can remember that in the face of of temptation and sin. We sing it, right? He will hold me fast. In the face of persecution, We will reign with Him forever. God's promises are certain. He was communicating that to Isaiah, to Ahaz through this king, through this prophet Isaiah. But Ahaz, how did he respond? He doubted the Word of God, didn't he? And how did the Lord respond to doubts? I love that the Lord was, uh, was gracious and offered him reassurance. Verse number 10. Isaiah 7, verse 10. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said... Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you that you weary men and you, that you weary my God also? <laughs> Ahaz says, no, I don't need a sign. Why do you think that is? Well, Ahaz says, because I will not put God to the test. I, I trust the Lord. And the reality, of course, is this is just mock piousness. He has no intention to trust the Lord. He is going to go around and make a uh, uh, put his hope in, in Assyria. 
to, to, to be able to defend himself against uh, Israel and the Syria, this northern alliance. And so, how does the Lord respond to Ahaz, really his lack of faith, ultimately? The Lord says to him, or the Lord says in verse number 14, uh, through Isaiah, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. This is a sign that the Lord gave to His people, and it is a bit of a cryptic sign. Behold, a virgin, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. And it goes on, and our questions come to mind. Well, uh, we we know the answers, maybe, but uh, I put myself in the place of uh, those who heard it first, and I ask myself, what virgin? And how will she conceive? And who is this Emmanuel? And what does it mean that he eats curds and honey, for that matter? And so I want to deal with these for a few minutes and we'll really just get to verse 14 and and we'll save the second half of this uh, chapter for next time, Lord willing. But this is, uh, of course, a sign that has become uh, an amazing and sweet thing for the people of God. I want to begin unpacking this, verse 14, this sign that God gave by saying this, that we should notice, first of all, that this sign is actually not given to Ahaz specifically. You might want to mark this in your Bible if you have never done this before. In verse 14, it says, Behold, the Lord will give you a sign. And that word you, you might want to underline that or circle that, and just make a note somewhere that that's actually a plural. The Lord will give to you, not specifically to Ahaz. Who is this sign addressed to? Well, who did Isaiah address in the beginning, right? House of David. So Ahaz, of course, rejected the offer of a sign uh, that would uh, be you know, a faith strengthener for him, but the Lord is still faithful to give this sign uh, to in accordance with his promises for his people. So right off, you get the idea that this sign is for a wider audience, right? Not just for Ahaz. And there are hints then that there is more to it than just might lie on the surface. And secondly, that helps us then begin to think about the scope of who it is that might be envisioned by this virgin and this child. 
these might not be necessarily, this, this virgin might not necessarily be someone within Ahaz's immediate purview. Uh, it might be something that is much farther into the future. Or this sign is now uh, given on a, on a grander scale than just merely to him. And I think part of, and, and so I think part of the key in, in sort of untangling and unpacking this, uh, this sign from the Lord is recognizing that Isaiah doesn't stop here in verse 14, but he continues kind of in this vein, uh, in this prophetic vein, giving this sign, unpacking and unfolding this sign throughout the rest of chapter 7 and then on into chapter 8 and into chapter 9. So really from chapter 7 to chapter 9, he continues to um, talk about these things. There's an interconnectedness here. And when you come to chapter 9, and we'll see this when we get there, but when we come to chapter 9, we will see that Isaiah continues talking about a special child that is to be born, right? Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, right? You remember that? We sing that every Christmas time, don't we? So he's continuing to talk about this special child, presumably the same child that's mentioned here in chapter 7. Born, according to chapter 9, to the house of David, which is exactly what's under threat here in chapter 7. Associated, this child in chapter 9, with the land of Galilee, which is in the north in, in Israel, this very place that is, that is part of the focus of the prophecy uh, here in chapter 7. And from Galilee, this child will bring light to the nations. The very nations that are threatening now the people of God. And further, and this just really begins to blow your mind when you get to chapter 9, that this child is called, among other things, the mighty God. And that his he will sit upon the throne of David from this time forth and forevermore. And those with ears to hear must have thought to themselves, could this be God in the flesh? And of course, that is exactly who it was. That is exactly what would become clear as God continued to unfold the history of redemption. After all, the title of this child in chapter 7, verse 14 was given as what? What will he be called? Emmanuel. Emmanuel, which could be translated, God is with us, and even refer to um, any man, especially a royal king. But technically, it reads this way, with us, God. And that's exactly who this child was. But it's also clear, I think, from the context of chapters 7 through 9, that this whole vision ultimately foresaw a distant future. Not the immediate context of Ahaz primarily, but a, a distant future. 
And I, and I think that because of what was said here in chapter 8, verse 16. You may want to just flip over there or take a look at it. In the midst of this um, prophecy that it, it runs from chapter 7 to 9, in the middle of that, in chapter 8, verse 16, he says this. Now bind up the testimony and seal the teaching among my disciples. So what God says through Isaiah. Now, what does that mean? <laughs> What's the significance of that? Well, do you know that that's not the only place we have language like that in the Bible, is it? Does that sound familiar? You've probably ran across this kind of language before, and maybe you just never tied these things together. But consider the prophecy that God gave to Daniel in the latter half of the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 8, verse 26, The Lord said to Daniel, listen, see if these words sound familiar. Familiar. Seal up the vision, Daniel. Why? Because it refers to many days from now. It's not for, for now, it's for the latter days, right, Daniel? It's for a, a, a day that is yet to come. That's when this vision will play itself out. The same thing in Daniel chapter 12 and verse uh, 4. And then again in verse 9. The Lord says to Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until when? Until the time of the end. So there's another sealing that preserves this to be unfolded, for the seals to be broken and to be unfolded in the day that it, uh, it, that it refers to. And then you have sort of the flip side of this in Revelation chapter 22. In Revelation 22 and verse 12, the Lord says to John now the opposite. Do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book. Why? For the time is what? The time is near. It's, it's time to be unfolded. This prophecy is ready to be unleashed. So the sealing of the prophecy of Isaiah indicates that his vision from chapter 7 to 9 but particularly right now focusing here on chapter 7, verse 14, that it really foresees a distant day. He binds up the testimony until, as he will say in chapter 9 and verse 1, until the latter time, until the last time. And what is the, that, what, are, what are those last days? Well, Hebrews chapter 1 says it this way, God, long ago and at many times in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days, He has spoken to us by His what? There it is. So, Isaiah foresees those days, the days of Christ, and he's told to seal up the prophecy. The Lord will unfold it in His time, in the fullness of time, as it were, right? This, in other words, is a messianic vision. And it has far greater import than just the immediate defeat of Israel and Samaria, this northern alliance and this ancient king all so long ago. I think that really helps us to begin to put this prophecy into perspective. And then, of course, thirdly, looking at this prophecy in retrospect, the virgin birth of Christ makes clear that this was indeed a messianic sign. 
Now, a sign doesn't have to necessarily be miraculous in order to be a sign from God. So, for example, Exodus chapter 31, the Sabbath was given as a sign that God would sanctify his people. Ezekiel chapter 4, an iron griddle, an iron cooking griddle that represented a kind of siege wall that that, uh, the prophet was told to place beside a little model of the city of Jerusalem. That griddle was a sign, as the scripture says it, of God's coming judgment. And in Exodus chapter 3, the Bible says that God's bringing of the people of Israel to Mount Horeb, where he met with Moses, after he delivered them from Egypt, that that would be a sign, a kind of an after-the-fact sign, that God had sent Moses to deliver them. So when they got to Mount Horeb, it would be reinforced. They would be reminded. It would be the exclamation point of God that I chose and sent this man to deliver you out of the hand of the Egyptians. Most of you um, are familiar probably somewhat with the controversy in the last century over, uh, over this prophecy and especially over the translation of the word virgin. Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son. Because the word virgin there is the Hebrew word alma, which uh, refers to a young woman, uh, a young woman of marriageable age, That word is not as explicit about the girl's virginity as another word, the word Bethula. But in Israel, a young girl, her virginity was assumed. And this is why I think that the Septuagint translation, the translation of the Hebrew into Greek, translated Alma here with a Greek term, that made virginity explicit. This is a a virgin. And and of course, that translation was done 150 years before Christ, so there's no sort of Jesus bias there. And the New Testament, when it comes to discuss this prophecy, puts it beyond dispute. Mary, Jesus' mother, was not with any man sexually until after Jesus was born. The Bible makes that very clear. So the virgin birth of Christ is in no doubt whatsoever. And of course, it is a hugely significant theological point. We, I, I preached a whole sermon on the, the theological significance of the virgin birth back at, at Christmas time. And of course... A miracle is not the only possible way to understand this prophecy. A virgin will conceive and bear a son. It's possible to think of this prophecy referring to a woman who is a virgin uh, conceiving and bearing a child by subsequently becoming married and conceiving in the normal way such that She's a virgin when the prophecy is made, and yet by the time she bears the son, of course, she's no longer a virgin. But it is Isaiah's unusual way of expression to say that a virgin will conceive, a virgin will bear a son that is at least highly suggestive that something 
supernatural is going on here, something more than meets the eye. And added in with all of the other layers of everything that's going on, it became apparent to all of those with eyes to see that this is something unusual. So, that when Mary conceived the Son of God without the help of a man, gave birth to Jesus, this was the miraculous sort of after-the-fact sign, the divine I told you so, if you will, looking back on the preservation of the house of David in Isaiah's day. A reminder that God is always true to his word. Remember that Ahab, what was his real worry? His real worry is that his line will be cut off. That the house of David will go extinct. He was worried about that. Just like you and I are worried about so many things that seem to threaten the promises that God has made to us, right? But God had made to David what he called his sure promises. And God will never abandon his covenant promises. Never. In Christ was the fulfillment of that Davidic promise. And so, friends, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ, the virgin birth of the Messiah, is like God's exclamation point in human history to say that all of his promises are sure. Ultimately, Christ was God's yes and amen. And the fact that God sent His Son into the world in accordance with His covenant, that He fulfilled all of the prophecies of Scripture in Christ, that ought to give you confidence that everything that God has ever said about you and about your salvation is just as sure. It's just as certain. God calls you, like He called Ahaz, to believe in the covenant promises of God, to rest your life in them, to bank on them, even in the face of the enemy standing at your gates. Hold fast in faith, he says to Ahaz. And this is his message to you this morning. Hold fast, stand firm in faith. When there are apparent threats to the promises of God, when there are sore afflictions that are just plaguing you, temptations that seem too much to bear, that they will surely take you down. Or afflictions and persecutions that you cannot imagine standing firm under. When you cannot foresee how the promises of God will come to play out when, when we're faced by satanic conspiracies and times of tumult and personal injustice and all of these things that really seem to threaten God's care for us. We should be reminded that in spite of every threat And this is just one here. We're reading in Isaiah 7. 
But in spite of the many series of threats that came before the coming of the Messiah and up into his lifetime, every attempt to thwart God's plan failed. Because God sits on his throne and every covenant promise he keeps. What he begins, he finishes. Amen? And he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how shall he not also with him graciously give us all things? Look back to his son. Look back to God's sign. That's God's sign for you, for us. That every promise he makes is certain. That no one can thwart his plans. That even his enemies turn out to be tools in his hand to bring about the establishment of his purposes. In this vein, the scripture says, we are more than conquerors in the face of persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and sword. In the face of all of these things, Christians have always had to say, look to Christ. God's yes. God's amen. God's sign. Don't waver in your faith. When you're tempted, when you're fearful, when your heart is quaking like Ahaz and all of the people of Judah, when all of the enemy seems so strong and so much surrounding you, to feel like you could, you could say there's no human way to, for, for these promises to be fulfilled. To rest and trust in the absolute sovereignty of God. How I've proved Him o'er and o'er. Oh, for grace to trust Him more. And most of all, remember His faithfulness in Christ, who is the sign of His trustworthiness. He will finish that work in light of Christ's coming into the world, we can be assured that everything that God has said will come to pass. Just as certainly as He fulfilled the Davidic covenant in the advent of His Messiah, in spite of opposition and threats to that, just as certain as He fulfilled that Davidic covenant in the advent of the Messiah, so He will fulfill all the ramifications of His covenant in the revelation of Christ's glory. And as we find ourselves sort of waiting for all of the implications of God's covenant promises to come to pass, this sign is for us. We're able to look back on that after-the-fact sign in our unique place in the history of redemption and have incredible encouragement. And there are times when when God's people... uh, stand under the threat of the enemy of God's plans and it feels like it goes on and on and on like that and they have to wait and wait and wait for God's vindication. And I would just want to remind you that the people of Israel, the people of Judah, the true people of God waited thousands of years for this sign, hundreds of years from Isaiah, for this sign to come to pass. Right? We are waiting and waiting for all the fulfillment of every one of God's promises and 
and, and it is ours to have faith, to stand firm in faith. That's the message here. And Isaiah, by the Word of God through Isaiah, the message comes down through the ages to us today. Stand firm in the faith, or you will not be firm at all. Stand firm in faith. Heavenly Father, please hear us now. Help our unbelief. Strengthen our faith in the face of all that we face. Pray that you would remind us of this sign when our faith wavers. In Jesus' name, amen.